The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box with Karen, myself and hopefully Steve at some point later on. Let's get into the headlines this hour. Shares in China's largest chip maker, SMIC, plunge as much as 20% after the US says it could blacklist the company, taking the shine off a solid set of Chinese trade numbers. A deal for December, US Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin says he expects the White House and congressional Democrats to reach an agreement by the end of this week to fund the US government through to the end of the year. SoftBank Sing says the Japanese investment giant is branded the Nasdaq whale, reportedly buying up massive bets on tech shares. As European Commissioner Paolo Gentiloni tells CNBC, Europe needs an answer to US tech dominance. It is a major problem, also because we all know that the, the, the giants of the digital platforms are the real winners of this crisis. We can't uh, manage this problem with a single digital taxation. France records over 7,000 new COVID cases on Sunday after Friday's record increase, as drug maker Sanofi says its vaccine could be priced below 10 euros a shot. And Russia's oil minister Alexander Novak tells CNBC crude oil prices will hover between 50 and $55 a barrel next year. For 2021, in my opinion, again speaking about the average price per year, we could be in the corridor 50 to 55 US dollars per, per, per barrel. China's exports showed solid growth in August, jumping 9.5% year-on-year and marking the strongest gain since March last year. Imports, however, slumped for the second month in a row, shrinking 2.1% against previous expectations of a slight gain. SMIC shares have tumbled in Hong Kong today in response to potential sanctions by the Trump administration. The U.S. Defense Department said on Friday it may add the Chinese chipmaker to its blacklist, possibly blocking American suppliers from selling to the company. Well, let's catch up on the story with Emily, who joins us now from Hong Kong. So clearly, uh, nerves are jangling over this uh, SMIC story. Emily, what more can you tell us about the Hong Kong reaction? That's right, Jeff. Uh, the reaction is uh, definitely apparent with the shares in SMIC losing close to one-fifth of their value on the suggestion by the Trump administration that the U.S. Defense Department is talking to the Commerce Department about potentially putting SMIC on its entity list and with this imposing export restrictions. Uh, the entity list already has more than 300 Chinese-based companies and if so, it will block U.S. companies from selling SMIC technology without a license. So this is first 
further showing that uh, there is a continued effort to put pressure on Chinese tech companies and then the escalation in the tech battle between Beijing and D.C. We are looking at SMIC shares that traded in Hong Kong uh, down more than 19 percent. The intraday low on the stock is 1878. Uh, the Shanghai listed shares are also uh, traded uh, quite weak today, down almost 10 percent. Now, SMIC ranks amongst the top five semiconductor companies in the world, but technology there lags far behind that of Taiwan and the United States. It was also once traded in the New York Stock Exchange, but delisted and they changed their listing to the star market. Uh, SMIC came online in Shanghai uh, in the middle of July. The company came out with a statement on Saturday saying it is in complete shock and perplexity to the news and it provides services solely for civilian and commercial end users and end uses. Uh, They say they have no relationship with the Chinese military. Any assumptions of the company's ties with the Chinese military are untrue statements and false accusations. SMIC says it is open to sincere and transparent communication with the U.S. government agencies in hopes of resolving potential misunderstandings. So SMIC shares are taking a very big hit today on the suggestion that it could be added to the U.S. blacklist and the Commerce Department's entity list. Back to you guys. Thank you so much for that, Emily. Well, Steve is back uh, after his trip to the Ambrosetti Forum in northern Italy this weekend. Steve, why don't I just hand over to you? Tell us a little bit about some of the interviews. Yeah, I'm just sorry. I'm not in vision, Jeff. I think uh, the gremlins are getting us on a Monday morning. Nice to see you and Karen in the studio, though. Um, Look, so much going on in the world, as we know as well. But Europe's trying to find its own path through it, whether it's on COVID-19, whether it's on geopolitical matters, whether it's on trade matters, and of course, goodness knows, with the Brexit situation as well, it's got its own nuances. But look, the Italians are... I believe they are right back and centre in Europe now. They think that the COVID-19 final recovery package actually has kind of re-endorsed the Italian position in Europe compared to where it was earlier on in the crisis, where there were huge concerns about what the EU was giving to Europe in terms of support, whether it be politically or in terms of the economics as well. Uh, so they think they're right back and centre now, but there's a hell of a lot of issues that they need to negotiate their way through, uh, including uh, the relationship with China. And uh, I kept hearing time after time the Europeans can try and find a third way, i.e. they don't have to choose China, they don't have to choose the US. They're trying to find uh, a situation where Italy and Europe ha- has its own path to, uh, to to dictate, so to speak, rather than being dictated to by those other superpowers. So with that in mind, uh, I spoke to uh, Luigi Di Maio. Now, he, of course, is the former leader of the Five Star Anti-Establishment Party, but now he strikes me as a very establishment Italian foreign affairs minister. And he told us that the pandemic has actually strengthened the country's multilateral relations with the U.S., uh, and China in particular. And, and time after time, I tried to question him on, well, th- these are issues which you need to resolve with the US. And actually, he spoke very friendly about the US uh, and about Donald Trump in particular. Now, I spoke to him at the Embracetti Forum, as you know, and asked him about how alliances have changed over the past six months. It's important to me that I mention that we receive support from all over the world, even supplies of medical equipment we bought from China like everyone else, but also from other countries. So the issue of our geopolitical alliances is not in discussion. Italy is firmly placed in the Euro-Atlantic alliance and an ally and friend of the US. The purchases of medical equipment during the pandemic does not change their relationships and alliances. In fact, it reinforces our friendship with the US. I thank President Trump for having approved $100 million in aid for Italy during the pandemic. 
In terms of that very difficult relationship with both of those parties, though, let's concentrate first, if we can, on China. Countries all over Europe and the world are making decisions on Chinese equipment in infrastructure going forward, in 5G to be specific, and the role of Huawei. When will Italy, when will you and the government have made your decision on Huawei? There have been reports that uh, Huawei will be um, excluded from 5G development in Italy. I fully agree with our allies, especially the US's concerns regarding the safety of 5G technology and our tech infrastructure. Italy, with our three regulatory measures, understands the US's concerns on the safety of cyber networks and infrastructures. So here's the interesting thing. You've got an Italian there basically looking to the US, and of course they're looking to endorse the relationships in one way, shape, or form. There has been a minor rapprochement over, I think it was 100 million euros worth of, uh, of trade between the two, including, very importantly for many of us, Parmesan cheese. But more importantly, you've got an Italian there who's refusing at all to criticise the US, and yet... Then I spoke to an American who is nothing but vitriol and, well, no criticism, I should say, um, in his view, uh, constructive, uh, about the president. And that's John Bolton. And John Bolton, of course, wrote the uh, Room Where It Happened memoir as well. I, I spoke to him extensively, actually, uh, on Zoom from D.C. Uh, and this is a former national security advisor telling CNBC that, that President Trump's failure to think strategically has worsened the impact of the coronavirus in the U.S. He warns that Trump's decisions actually getting could get worse. They could get worse, his decisions, he says, if he's re-elected in November. Now, Bolton, uh, as I think our viewers will remember, served as the national security advisor for Mr. Trump from April 2018 to September 2019. Now, in the summer, he wrote this book, which actually I've listened to on Audible, um, or other services are available, of course, uh, but I listened to it uh, in which he was continually criticising uh, the president very aggressively. The book's called The Room Where It Happens. It's uh, his White House memoir, and goodness knows uh, there's a lot of books out about the administration at the moment. But I called up with Ambassador Bolton over Zoom during the Ambassador City Forum, uh, where I asked him about those rising tensions between the US and China. I think China is uh, the existential question for the West as a whole in the 20th century. Uh, it's not pursuing uh, a Western uh, approach either to economics or to politics, domestically or internationally. Uh, I think it's trying to expand its hegemonic power in, his, in its region and, and in some respects globally. I think the conflict over Huawei is a good example. Huawei is not a commercial telecommunications company. It's an arm of the Chinese state. Uh, I think China has demonstrated its hostile capabilities in the South China Sea. It's trying to make it into a province of China. They've, there's just been an armed clash with India in uh, Ladakh along the uh, line of actual control. So this, this is a very, very serious issue. And I think we're all waking up a little bit late to the Chinese threat, uh, but I think it's real. And I think it is worth discussing among the, the industrial democracies. And where have been the policy mistakes so far with the administration from Mr. Trump regarding China? He, he's played very strongly on his personal relationship with Mr. Xi uh, as well. But would you say that that hasn't gone far enough in, in creating the right atmosphere between the two countries? Actually, should there be a personal relationship between Mr. Trump and Mr. Xi? Well, personal relationships in international affairs are fine, but nobody should think that Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin or, or other particularly authoritarian leaders let a personal relationship interfere with their pursuit of their national interest, nor, nor should the leader of a democracy uh, let it interfere. I, I think uh, 
the, the way we deal with China would be uh, much enhanced if we had better European-American cooperation. I think we would be more powerful in dealing with some of the Chinese abuses in international trade and stealing intellectual property, forced technology transfer and the like. So uh, we're all waking up late to the Chinese threat. I think for several decades we uh, persisted under the idea that China was engaged in a peaceful rise and it would be a responsible stakeholder. Uh, I think if anybody had any questions on that, the way China handled the coronavirus pandemic uh, should should uh, should prove the, the, the real case. They covered up, they lied, they engaged in a disinformation campaign that's continuing to this very day. I've got to say, Karen, actually, Ambassador Bolton was very generous with his time, actually, and we, we covered a whole host of issues, so maybe we'll get to some of that a little bit later on as well. Um, just to say also, we spoke to uh, Paolo Gentiloni, European Commissioner for uh, the Economy as well, and some uh, very interesting comments there as well. So we'll come to that in a little bit later on. But Karen, just safe to say, I'm looking at the picture they're putting up over this interview because of the uh, technology gremlins I have, and I think it looks far better than the real thing. So I think we'll just stick with that picture for a lot longer. Back to you, Karen. You're going to love those nicely crafted mug shots that we do in the studio there. Well, the thing is, I mean, he could be sat at home with his uh, fluffy slippers on and his pyjamas, couldn't he? As far as we know, <laughs> a Steve. in hand, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no denial. I didn't hear a denial. All I can denial. say to you, Mr. Six Cutmore, is from the top upwards, I look beautiful. From the, the, from the bottom half is a slightly more scruffy, agrarian, East Sussex look. Right, right. I mean, I, I heard rumours that he's got honey monster slippers. You know those big ones? <laughs> right. I'm not sure I think you'll true. find they're frozen too slippers, actually. <laughs> well, you should give your daughter slippers back and uh, go get yourself a coffee. We'll be back to you, Steve, in a I bit. Know, it broadens out the audience, doesn't it? All those uh, frozen two fans out there, including my five-year-old. Let's push on, take a look at some of the market activity across Asia today. We're seeing a little bit of reversal across all the major markets. Concerns around trade, SMIC. We're talking about the chip maker in China today, whether it ends up in a situation like Huawei with the US regulations. And you can see the Chinese market trading weaker. Japan also down. And some of this around uh, some loss-making in SoftBank, which we'll talk about uh, huge implications for the US markets as we're talking about SoftBank being the, the Nasdaq whale moving those tech stocks stateside. But uh, let's just get set up with the trading day here as the opening calls in Europe uh, come hot on the heels of what was a weaker session Friday. We saw the market reversing 1.1% overall, but over the course of the week we're down about 1.8% for the European markets, in particular for the FTSE. We had a fairly weak trade uh, last week and we start below the 5,800 point mark. So it is uh, as a, a lower setting that we try and re recover some of these losses. Taking to the U.S. markets, and I think most of the, the activity is really around those tech stocks. Again, investors closely eyeing on what was taking place in the Nasdaq. At one point, we were down almost 10% from the, the record high in intraday trading on the Nasdaq. So with the losses that we've seen across the course of the week, fairly sharp reversal and news was crossing that it had been one big buyer in the market and that was the Japanese player SoftBank that has been selling down some of its other long-term assets uh, in the private market. So let's just get into what we had is uh, shares in SoftBank are trading lower in Japan, weighing on the Nikkei reporting, uh, following a report that names the investment giant as the quote Nasdaq whale. The Financial Times claims SoftBank has made over $4 billion from a series of massive bets on U.S. tech firms helping to fuel the recent rally. The shift in approach began in March as SoftBank rotated out of a slew of positions in startups that turned sour and the worsening of the pandemic. Uh, but just extraordinary. You think about all these long-term bets that they had, unicorns they were mm. buying into. They sell off some of those assets because they need to raise money. Then they turn into a hedge fund and go and buy all of these tech stocks with huge amount of bets out there in the market. Uh, this is a fascinating story. We talked a little bit about 
the uh, rumors that were beginning to emerge about major investors in uh, derivatives uh, who were if effectively forcing many of the banks to then hedge and cover by buying the underlying shares. And then at the end of the week, Obviously, the good work the FT is doing uncovered the involvement here of this business. I think there, there are still some question marks, though, to be asked as we go forward as to exactly how much money they may have made from pursuing this trade at this point, and also whether um, other um, uh, people involved in the markets are going to just take a good hard look at this and ask some questions about whether this is an appropriate use of, of SoftBank's assets at this point and what it's doing to distort price action in the markets because again you know stories like this I think just play to the idea that a lot of retail investors have that increasingly these markets are rigged in favor of the larger players but I know there'll be many out there who will say ever was it thus it's a bit Robin Hood in terms of the strategy and you think about how sophisticated this investment vehicle is it's just become like a retail investor chasing certain trades notional exposures thought to be at 30 billion dollars in call options there were some suggestions they were sitting on paper profits of about $4 billion. But as we know, the markets can quickly reverse, so those paper profits can quickly be eroded when you get a, a snapback. Um, we've had that over the course of last week. So, yeah, a curious one. But uh, meantime, it does raise the question about the future of technology in Europe. And at the Ambrosetti Forum, European Commissioner for the Economy, Paolo Gentiloni, expressed concerns that some of the larger US tech companies are not paying their fair share of taxes. It is a major problem, also because we all know that the uh, the, the giants of the digital platforms are the real winners of this crisis from the economical point of view. And we all experience this in our own lives. So it's, it's normal and it is positive that we have these technology advanced means. But it is not uh, no more possible to accept the idea that those giants, the winners of the crisis, are not paying a fair amount of taxes in Europe. And we can't uh, manage this problem with a single digital taxation in UK, in Italy, in Spain, in France, in Czechia, etc., etc. We need, at least at the European Union level, a general uh, measure. Uh, we, are hope, we hope that this can be reached at a global level. You are right that we have difficulty in the OECD slash G20 um, discussion, but we made also progress. So we will see in the next week if something is possible. Paolo Gentiloni there speaking with Steve in Ambrosetti. Still to come on the programme then, Saudi Aramco cuts its crude oil prices as Russia's energy minister issues a downbeat forecast. We'll have more on that when we come back. Plus, for more on the interviews from the Ambrosetti Forum and analysis on ongoing trade tensions between the US and China, check out the Sport Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Prices 
are trading lower after Saudi Aramco slashed the price of oil. It will sell to the US and Asia in October amid expectations of weaker demand. And you can see the price at 42.16 on Brent. We are reversing morning session. WTI just perched below the 40 handle, down 1.4%. So clearly a little bit of weakness now cropping back up in the price. And I wonder how much of this is linked to the broader stock market action you've seen over the course of the last couple of weeks, that fading enthusiasm around US stimulus. And as we had the jobs report that crossed on Friday, I think the market said it was a little bit Goldilocks, but not in a good way. <laughs> Typically not too hot, not too cold. It is good for the markets, but the jobs data was not hot enough to suggest those jobs are coming back quickly, uh, not cold enough uh, to also uh, mm. encourage stimulus to come back into the system with the stalled talks on, on uh, Capitol Hill. Let me make a bold statement here. I don't think the oil price action at the moment has a great deal to do with the economic story. Um, we've had a, a strong recovery. We've gone back through the $40 a barrel level. But last week was the worst week for WTI and Brent since June. Um, it also was uh, the week where we saw the VIX hit its highest level since June. The Dow and the S&P had their worst week since June and the Nasdaq and the NDX had their worst week since March. It strikes me that a lot of these trades are actually running in parallel and ultimately the setback that we had in uh, risk appetite I think has just had an impact also on the way WTI has traded and some of that is about the reversal that we've seen in the dollar weakness I think it's given a lot of traders pause for thought because nobody wants to enter new positions at this point if the dollar's going to firm up on geopolitical issues or the trade story and they get left holding a, a, an underwater position. So I, I think after the gains that have probably been booked here by a lot of traders in a lot of different asset classes, knowing that September already looks like a choppy month, I suspect this is just a little bit of precautionary profit-taking and not so much about the big macro story on growth. Which I think all the different reasons we're highlighting, though, just as an add to the complexity now on the price direction. And Hadley's been having those conversations for us. Hadley, let me toss it out to you on price direction from here, what we're likely to see and what some of the big players are out there in, in various countries, from Russia to Saudi Arabia, are now banking on when it comes to the oil price. Karen, it's a fascinating picture, as you mentioned, because at the end of the day, you know, I was actually supposed to speak to not just Alexander Novak, the Russian energy minister last week, but I was also supposed to catch up with His Royal Highness, Prince Abdulaziz, as well, frankly, as uh, Mr. Masrui from right here in the UAE. Unfortunately, with the joys of Zoom that we're not all experiencing, we weren't able to all get on at the same time. But Alexander Novak, I asked him for a price call and I asked him if he really agrees with the statements coming out of OPEC in the last several days, which kind of seemed as if they were not so optimistic. Listen in to what he had to say. I completely can see that an average price could be on that level, an average price per year, but in a dynamics, it could be more volatile. Um, I have a rather more modest forecast comparing to uh, Goldman Sachs for 2021. In my opinion, again, speaking about the average price per year, we could be in the corridor 50 to 55 US dollars per, per, per barrel, correspondingly. But uh, the volatility might be there, including the 
high prices and low prices in general in overall i mean and um for instance if there will be overheating of the market then the prices might significantly go up but we have all the tools and instruments to make sure that there is a, no such a situation where the market will be overheated let's say because it is negative uh, because it means that the next phase will be uh, overproduction not often there that you get that kind of price call from an energy minister, is it? He was essentially saying he is not as bullish as Goldman Sachs for next year, calling it between 50 and $55 a barrel. He also was seeming to suggest that while he does expect a lot of volatility in the short term, he is perhaps more optimistic than many of the traders we've been speaking to, as well as oil ministers in other parts of the world. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.